Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. We're in Mark chapter 2. Today we're coming to a fascinating passage. I probably could have spent two weeks just reading and studying. I love to get into the scripture and to really wrestle with what is this passage telling us. And so often, you know, we don't see the Bible through the lens of the first century. And that's our challenge. You know, we read it as we are, right? We're Westerners. We're not living in the first century. We're kind of materialists. They live in a very communal uh, environment. We're individualists. We value different things. We see things differently. And so to really wrestle with what did the early disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, what did they see? What impacted their heart? What is Jesus communicating? Because today in Mark chapter 2, we're coming to the story in which Jesus heals a paralytic. And that's amazing in itself. But within that story, Jesus addresses a deeper need. And at first, it almost seems insensitive. Because these men, we're going to read this, they're going to bring this paralytic to Jesus, right? These four men who have this faith and they're thinking, maybe Jesus, I don't know, maybe he can do something. And when Jesus sees this man, he doesn't say you're healed. He says you're forgiven. And I imagine for everybody in the room and for us as readers, we're going, what? what? I don't know, Jesus, if you, he can't walk. It's kind of like going to a doctor and you have a broken arm and he, you walk in and he says you're forgiven. Okay, things just got a little weird, but, but thanks for that. But could you address my issue? But there's something in this story that Jesus is addressing, which is a need that I think we ignore. We often see our physical needs. I mean, those are apparent, and God cares for those needs. But sometimes behind those physical needs are deeper spiritual needs that he wants to reveal to us. And one of those greatest needs is simply forgiveness. It's forgiveness. I think our world is starving for true forgiveness. What is true forgiveness? It's the opportunity to be fully seen, to be known, and yet to admit this is where I am, and for God to forgive us, to love us, to accept us. The world needs this forgiveness, but church, they need it through us. We need to be a community of reconciliation towards God, a community of forgiveness. And we won't have that unless we experience the depths of God's forgiveness for us. You ready for that? So let's jump into it, if you will. Let's grab a Bible. We're Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. You guys ready? Okay, thanks. Thanks. Give me a little bit, okay? Just need a little encouragement. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I feel that. I'm receiving it. <laughs> and when he returned <coughs> excuse me, to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not, get, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit 
that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. I know when we gather as a community of faith, it brings joy to your heart to see your children together. And Father, we need the revelation of the Spirit to illuminate the word that we would know you. And in knowing you, Father, know what it means to follow Jesus in a world that is broken, in a world in which we stumble and fall, sometimes willfully disobey you. We need the refreshment of that word, forgiveness, to wash over us so that we might be a people of reconciliation to a world that needs to be set free, needs to know your love. So help us, Father, as we walk through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus' message was pretty simple. If you had to summarize it, he already did that for us in chapter 1, verse 15. He said in chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus preached a message of the kingdom of God. Now, the word kingdom is difficult for us because we don't live in a kingdom. The kingdom means God's rule and reign, that wherever Jesus was, he taught about God's rule and reign. But this is important. He also revealed what it looks like to live under God's rule and reign by the stories that we read in Mark's gospel. And Mark arranges these stories, not necessarily chronologically. He arranges them in a way that gives us a full picture of who Jesus is. And if you think about the path that we've been on, you know, Jesus' first sermon is actually in the gospel of Luke. It's one of the shortest sermons, which I could probably learn a lot from. It's an incredibly short sermon. It's in Luke chapter four. And let me read that for you. In Luke chapter four, Jesus goes to the synagogue and what they would do is they would take scrolls. They would be in this, this case and they'd take a scroll out. He takes out the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up. You can imagine opening that up before the people. And he turns to the place where he finds these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End of sermon. You guys would all be so happy. It's time to go home. Jesus rolls up the scroll. He puts it away, and he sits down. And it says the eyes of everyone in the room was fixed on Jesus. And he's sitting in the crowd, and he says in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I imagine in the crowd, there was just silence. What is he saying? Everything that Isaiah promised, it's showing up in Jesus. The good news is preached to the poor. Captives, the oppressed are set free. The blind receive sight. See, as we watch the story of Jesus, we see the winter of sin turning to the spring of God's forgiveness and grace. I don't know if you know the writer C.S. Lewis, but he describes the kingdom of God using the language of the transformation from winter into spring. 
that you could imagine the world that is just frozen in a perpetual winter. The trees, the birds, even the people are all frozen. But when Jesus shows up, what happens is things begin to thaw. Life begins to come back. And everywhere that Jesus goes, everything he touches, it returns. Life comes back to the world. It's in some ways like the end of the Lion King. When, they, when, when the true king takes his rightful place, the land begins to flourish. That's what we're seeing in a very microcosmic way in the Gospel of Mark. Everything that Jesus touches, God's restoring. This is the heart of our God. And where his power and authority is, people's lives are restored. But in this story, there's a deeper need that I, I think we often ignore. Because we can see physical needs. You can see a paralytic and recognize that person has a need. But there is also a deeper spiritual need, a need of the soul, a need of the heart. And it's wrapped up in this word we need to wrestle with, which is sin. Now, often within our culture, sin sometimes in the church is like a weapon that we unleash on others. I think for Jesus, sin was a word that liberated people. It helped them to see where they are. And because they saw where they are, it set them free to receive God's grace his forgiveness and transformation. So let's jump back in the story if we can and kind of paint the picture of verses one through three. Here are four men. They have a friend who's a paralytic. And these guys, I want friends like this. If you're my friend, can you be a friend like this who is so invested in me that you're willing to take this burden on yourself? They carry their friend. I don't know how that far they traveled. Mark doesn't give you a lot of details. But they took him to Jesus. And when they got there, I imagine they were discouraged. How are we going to get him in? Because Jesus is at Simon's house. We assume Simon's house was kind of the, his home base in Capernaum. And when they got there, crowds were surrounding the house. And houses back then, they were not very big. They're pretty small. And so they get to the house, and the house is surrounded with people. And likewise, inside the house, Jesus is preaching to people. There's no way to get in. So what they decide to do is vandalism. Let's vandalize this house. That's a great idea. I love Jesus so much. We're going to vandalize this house to get our friend to Jesus. And what they did is they climbed up on the roof. Now, that wasn't difficult in Israel because every house had stairs or they had a ladder that would lead you up to the top floor. Because the top floor was like another room in your house. It's where you might cook. Could be where you placed clothes. Could be where you prayed. And they went up to the roof, and these roofs were not permanent in the sense like ours that stay from year to year. Instead, it was something that you had to reinforce every single year. And it was built with wooden beams, and then across those beams, you could imagine thatch, straw, would be laid out. On top of the straw and mixed in with the straw is mud and stone. So it was something that had to constantly receive maintenance. And so here's the scene. You can imagine what's happening. Jesus is inside. He's teaching to a group of people. Everybody's fixated. And then you feel that little drop or you feel that something is descending. Something's falling. Light breaks into the darkness of that room. And you know everyone has to be now looking up, including Jesus. I imagine in this scene he has a smile on his face. I imagine in this moment as these heads start poking down and people start talking and this man is lowered down, Jesus is excited about what he sees. And part of what he sees, and it's interesting, the language, did you notice that in verse five? He said he saw their faith. Do you think of faith as something that people see? 
And see, because it was visible, Jesus did something for this man. Through the faith of his community, he did something for this paralytic. And I imagine when this uh, event took place, if you look again in verse five, it says they saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I imagine looking into the face of Jesus, the paralytic knew exactly what he meant. And immediately there was liberation and freedom. There's a sense of life. But to everybody watching the scene, it must have seemed a little strange. As I said, it's like going to the doctor and something's wrong with you. And he says, you're forgiven. And you're thinking, that's not the problem. Now, people back then believed that if you had an illness, it was because you must have sinned. And I'm not sure if Jesus is addressing that. It could be this man actually did sin in some way. And this this disease, this impact was because of what happened. The text doesn't tell us. It just says that Jesus looked upon this man. And when he says, my son, it says son, it means my son. And he uses this familiar term, your sins are forgiven. And for the crowds and the readers, it's unexpected. But for the scribes, did you notice how they responded? This is blasphemy. Jesus, who do you think you are? Look at verse 6. And notice they're questioning in their hearts. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, and it's a fair question. Why does, notice the word, is this man? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Absolutely. And that's part of what Mark is doing. He's forcing us to wrestle with that question. If Jesus can forgive, who is he? And that's the question all of Mark is setting up. Who is this man? Now, one of the things we have to realize, and we've talked about Jesus being the Messiah, which is the promised one who would come and liberate Israel. And part of that is that he would set the land and the people free from sin. But the Messiah was not associated with the forgiveness of sin. He was associated with the liberation of sin. So there's no concept of the Messiah forgiving. And so this is out of place. And the language that Jesus uses is very eye-centered, meaning it's centered in him. Because in the Old Testament, the priests would forgive sin. There's actually a story in which Nathan, you may remember the story of Nathan and David. And David commits adultery. And David repents. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. The difference with Jesus is he doesn't introduce the Lord. He says, I, you are forgiven. He stands in the place of God. Now think about this for a moment. And some of you may not know a lot about the temple in the Old Testament, but I think this is fascinating. When you think about the temple and you think about Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where the fullness of God dwelt, where his power, his authority was. It was supposed to be a place where the Ten Commandments were kept in the Holy of Holies. It was the place of God's authority. It was also a place where things that were unclean were made clean where sacrifices were made, where sin was forgiven. Fullness of God's presence, things are made clean, people are forgiven. Jesus is taking everything that the temple is and he's localizing that in himself, including God's presence. Jesus is the walking presence of God and he has the authority we see in this story to forgive sins. And so notice what happens. And and I struggle with this in verse eight because it seems like Jesus is rebuking the scribes, even though I think they're asking a pretty fair question. 
How do you have the authority to forgive sins? Notice in verse eight, immediately perceiving in their spirits. So whether he, could, he knew they were asking this or whether he could see into their hearts, he questioned, they thus questioned within themselves and said, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus is drawing out the struggle that they're having, which is a honest struggle. Who are you that you think you have the right to declare this man forgiven? So I want to sit for a moment on the word sin, because we all love sin, right? We do because we do it every day. It's a reality of our existence. Sin is not just an action. You know, sin is part of our condition. It's an idea that things get distorted. God created all things good. And this word in the Greek, if we can pull that up, is the word harmartia. And it literally means to miss the mark. And that's an important word. But the question becomes, what's the mark? And some people will say, well, the mark is God's law. And that's true. We failed to live up to God's glory. We failed to live up to his law. But I think there's a greater mark that we often miss, which is the purpose for which we were created. That sin is missing the purpose for which we were created. We were created in the image of God, which means to reflect creation's praise back to God, but also you were created in a unique way to reflect the character of God to the world. And see, whatever becomes an authority, and we've talked about authority over the last few weeks, whatever is an authority in your life, you're going to reflect that authority back to the world. If it's money, you're going to reflect the authority of money back to the world. If it's a political party, if that's your main focus, you're going to reflect that back to the world. Whatever we worship, we, in a sense, reflect the character of. And sometimes we need to stop and say, what am I reflecting to the world? And if I have faith in Jesus, is that faith seen? Could people accuse me of being made in the image of God in a reflection of Jesus Christ? And I think that's the mark we miss. We often fail God's law, but we fail to be what he's created us to be, which is to reflect him, to reflect his character. And that requires trust. Because Jesus' commands put us in situations we are absolutely dependent on him, that he calls us to forgive he says, by this, they will know you're my disciples, right? By what? By how you love. That's something you see. The ways that Jesus describes us is that we are to reflect God's character, and that is the mark that we miss. You know, this word sin, I think, is something we need to recapture, and I think it's something in our culture we need to reclaim. Because when we understand the, the true concept of sin, we understand the freedom of forgiveness. Now, one person that's helped me with that, that is in some ways a sin apologist, is this uh, author, David Brooks. I don't know if you've read any of his articles in the New York Times. David Brooks is a committed Christian, and he says we need to recover in our culture a true definition and understanding of sin. And at a conference that he was at, he was teaching on this, and this is what he said. This is a bridge for the rest of the world, and I quote, the language of good and evil. This language has become absent in the secular world. The word sin is now mostly used in reference to desserts. If you want to talk about the deepest affairs of the heart, only words like sin, soul, redemption really work. If you don't have those words, you're losing the tools. 
People don't change because they just decide to be better. If that happened, then New Year's resolutions would work. People decide to change because they elevate their loves. As St. Augustine says, you become, think of image, what you love. If you can't talk about the struggle of sin, you can't talk about why some loves are higher than other loves. And ordered versus disordered loves. If you don't have the moral vocabulary, the mental toolkit to think about how to be better, the Christian tradition gives us that. What he's saying is our culture, we experience existentially the reality of sin. We know there's something wrong with us. Christian, non-Christian, I think everyone recognizes that they fall. They miss the mark. Now, they may not know what that mark is, but they know the liberation of confession. The human soul, because of sin, longs to be seen, known, and forgiven. And you've seen that, even on the secular side. When somebody's honest about what's going on in their life or what they've done, there's a liberation that takes place. Well, how much more when that separation is not between two human beings, but between the creation and God, and you hear the words of your creator, you are forgiven. There is a newness of life and a liberation that happens to us. That's what Jesus is describing. And when we lose the word sin, we lose the, for, we lose the power of forgiveness. And so let's jump a little bit into that word, unpack the impact it has on us. Because sin is not just failing or missing or not following up to the rules. Instead, the first idea I wanna share with you is that sin is the reality that we have betrayed a relationship. If you think that God has created us in his image, he's created us to reflect him. We are dependent. We are under his authority. And an aspect of sin is that we've rejected God as the center and we put ourselves in the center. Instead of God being our definition of good, we come up with our own definition. Instead of God being the place where we understand right and wrong, instead we become that center. And as a result of that, we betray God's trust, we betray our role in creation. If I said to you right now, I love my car. Now, if you've seen my car, I don't love it. But it's just a, it's a, anyways. And you said, wouldn't it be funny to mess with Jason's car? Now, if you did that to me, it would be a betrayal of relationship, not a vandalism of my car. Because I shared with you my heart. I shared with you what I care about. And when you, in a sense, break what I love or you vandalize what I love, it, it breaks the relationship. It causes disrespect and betrayal. And the Bible describes sin that way. I, I think James is really helpful in this case, in James chapter three. Listen to how James describes sin and he describes the sin of slander, which is something I think all of us participate in from time to time. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother, notice, what does he speak against? God's law. What is God's law? God's law is God's character. It's his heart. When you speak against a human being, realize you're casting and you're speaking, you're, you're speaking against God. Why? God loves his car. You vandalized it. God loves human beings. We slander a human being, what happens is the offense is not just against the human, it's against the one that loves the human, created the human. It's a betrayal of that 
relationship. There's a deeper spiritual reality to the broken relationships we have in this world. So it's a betrayal. That's the logic. And then second, it's actually not just a betrayal. It's a separation. That relationship has to be repaired. When someone does something to you, like you messed with my car, why did you do that? We need to reconcile. And the only way to reconcile is for the two of us to come together and to repair, right? You know you have those relationships right now where you know you need repair. And that relationship carries tension and it carries separation. You can't trust each other because you haven't repaired. If that's true in human relationships, when we sin against God, there is a chasm of disrepair between us and the Father. And the good news of Jesus is he's the one who can restore it. We can't fix it. Jesus comes in and the good news is he says, I can reconcile you through my life, death, resurrection. You can be reconciled to God because sin is not just a betrayal of relationship. It's, it's the broken relationship. And then finally, sin is this idea that we have sinned against God's perfect design, his shalom. God has created the word, world to flourish just like we talked about in C.S. Lewis' story of a perpetual winter. When sin comes in, there's this perpetual winter that freezes or breaks the perfect design that God has created. And God has created the world to flourish under his authority, us as image bearers. But when sin comes in, it distorts, it warps, it takes away the flourishing that God has put into the world. It breaks his perfect shalom. Sin is ultimately against God. Now, Jesus is going to kind of unpack that, and we're going to finish with this. If you jump down to verse 9, notice what he says. He's healed. He says he's forgiven this paralytic, and then he goes into this, this argument, in a sense, with the scribes and Pharisees. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Obviously, it's a lot easier to look at someone and say, hey, I know you want to walk, but your sins are forgiven. I could do that. But it's a lot harder to look at a paralytic and say, get up and walk without some kind of evidence. So verse 10, but that you may know the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is an important word, and I want to just, if we can, just pause on that. Son of Man is a, is a word from Daniel, and the Son of Man in Daniel is one who has God's authority. It's described as one who comes in the authority of God, but here's the problem. The Son of Man in Daniel is going to suffer. It's talking about a future time. The Son of Man comes in God's authority, but the problem is that Son of Man is going to suffer. And so people are going to question, if he's in God's authority, why is he suffering? Why is he persecuted? Why is he rejected? But at the end of the story, the Son of Man is vindicated by God. You see the one that looks rejected is actually walking in God's authority. And there's a microcosmic sense in which that's what's happening here. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What happens? Everyone rejects him. The scribes do. You can't forgive sin. And what happens? He gets vindicated. How? Well, look, let's look at the story. How does vindication take place? Verse 11. And I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course you haven't. No one has. The kingdom, realize he's saying the kingdom of God is here, guys. The king is here. God's presence is here. And I'm here to address 
your deepest need. Realize he doesn't ignore human suffering, but he also addresses the needs beneath human suffering, which is the reality that our hearts need to be made new. You know, what would it, what would forgiveness feel like? You know, when Jesus and Mark, and they describe a story in the Gospel of Mark, often it's there to illustrate the main idea. What would forgiveness feel like? If God looked at us and saw us completely and forgave us, it would look like a paralytic who suddenly could walk. It would be freedom, liberation, the opportunity to live life as God had created it. Freedom, uh, forgiveness sets us free. He's illustrating a picture of what forgiveness does. But notice this real quick in verse 5, because I want us to end on this idea that what moved Jesus to heal him and to forgive him was the faith of these four men. Did you notice that? He says he saw their faith. And it wasn't the faith of the paralytic. Now listen, pause there. I don't doubt he had faith. But what moved Jesus was the faith of the community. They trusted God. And because they trusted God, God worked through their trust in the lives of others. You know, that's what the church is supposed to be. There's people that struggle to trust God. And you know, sometimes that's me. I'm in a place where I need to lean on your faith. Sometimes I need to come and simply listen to Vivian sing and the worship team sing because I'm just not in that place of faith. And their faith allows me to see God rightly and it brings life brings faith. It brings trust. When we show up and trust God, God works through that. Do you realize that? God works through your faith where you are, whether in an office place or in a school, whether in a family. God multiplies faith when it's seen. And often Jesus will say, you know, they'll know us by our love. They'll know us by the way that we treat others. They'll know us by the mercy that we show. They'll know us by our obedience and our trust. Faith is something that is seen. And when we see it in each other, it encourages us and it strengthens us because there's times where I doubt God could heal. And I love that I get to talk to someone like Armstrong because so often in the West, we live in a materialistic society where, hey, I just need a doctor, right? I got the 401k, I got the retirement funds and we have all these material possessions that give us a false sense of security. And there's some places where those possessions and those material gifts are not as as readily accessible and they have to depend on the power of God and when I go to places like that I start depending on the power of God because his faith helps me to see God in a different way and so we need to trust one that Jesus has the ability to heal but he also has the ability to address our deeper needs which is to forgive us to restore us Jane uh, John said Uh, If you confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us. And I don't know where you are this morning as you're sitting here, what God's stirring up, whether there's something you need to confess and simply to offer to God or or maybe you're here today and, and there's something that needs to be healed that you need to ask the elders to pray for. You need to ask people, say, hey guys, I have a need. And sometimes we're afraid, aren't we? To present that need, but he is faithful and he wants to meet those needs through the community of faith, guys. Hey, if you didn't grab the communion elements when you came in, I want to encourage you to do so. We're going to conclude by celebrating communion, which reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood that makes us clean, cleanses us, redeems us, and reconciles us to God. And so we're going to spend some time holding those elements. 
And then after a time of prayer, we're gonna receive them together. Hey, Rob. Can I get some sound? I'm gonna unmute, unmute. Often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death. 